going to turn to, to God's Word. We're continuing reading in the book of Genesis, and we're at Genesis chapter 25. We've been following from creation through Noah, through the story of Abraham. Abraham, given that promise that he would have a family, that that family would be blessed, that that family would grow, that they'd be given a land of their own, and through them, God would work out his plan of blessing for all the nations to put right what had gone wrong in his creation. We pick up the story now after the death of Abraham. Um, the story has fallen to his son Isaac, and as we will see, it's beginning to move to the next generation of the grandchildren of Abraham. Picking up Genesis chapter 25, reading at verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah of Bethuel. Sorry, Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padam Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer. And his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her. And she said, what is happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the elder will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau, that means red. After this, his brother came out, and his hand was grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob, which sounds a bit like heel. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick! Let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is my birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate, drank, and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word, this story from so long ago. 
It may be familiar to some of us and for others, perhaps new. But we ask that as we learn this ancient story, we meditate on your word, that it would become our birthright and what you have promised to us in Jesus. So refresh us and renew us and make us attentive to hear you. Amen. If I can have the, the oh, we've got the screen. There we are. Genesis chapter 25 begins by telling us the account of Abraham's family line. And we, we've been tracing this family line, actually we trace it right through the book of Genesis from chapter 12 onwards, and really right through the rest of the whole of the scriptures. The line of Abraham, the line of God's blessing, and God choosing this people to bless them, but also that promise given to Abraham, not only would he be blessed and his family become great, but through them would come a blessing. Now we, we know what that blessing is, because through that line came the Messiah Jesus, who is the blessing to the whole of creation to, to repair all that is damaged and all that is broken. It's an amazing thought. Here is God who is, has created the whole of the world, but what he is doing as he begins his rescue plan is he's identifying himself with one particular group of people. In fact, so much so that as we begin to read the Bible, God begins to identify himself and be known as the God of Abraham. The God of Abraham. And that is quite amazing. He will also be the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Joseph and all his brothers. And those stories we'll get to next. But the story starts with this small thought. Isaac has married Rebecca. And Rebecca is childless. said of the family of Abraham that childlessness runs in the family, which when you think about it is quite ironic. Sarah had had the same struggle, and we'll see that same struggle in, in generations to come. In fact, we might actually look at it and say, was it the woman that had the problem, or when it actually becomes in generation after generation, it's probably the man. But here we are with Isaac recognizing something important. Because what it says here is that the Isaac immediately began to pray about this situation. Why is he doing that? Well, first of all, what Isaac is recognizing this as he does this is this. That he needs to rely on God. This blessing that God has given, that God has offered to him and his family, isn't just going to happen automatically. He needs to keep turning and being aware that everything he has is going to come from God. Even the things that he might have thought, well, we can do this ourselves, he finds, no, he needs to come and he needs to rely on God. And he needs to be praying at every step of the way. Now, I just, just put that question on us this morning as we look at our church and we look at what we want to do and what we seek to do in, in community, in neighborhood, and in world today. Are we a people who says, well, you know, we've got great abilities, and we have. If we look around this, this congregation, we can see lots of talent and abilities. Or are we a people who say we've got a, a fantastic place and, and a building and a, and a situation, and that has potential for us to do things? 
Or are we a people who say what we need to do is develop a, a great plan, maybe a presbytery mission plan, and we're going to be getting on to doing some of that in, in the months that come, or, or maybe a congregational five-year plan, and we need to get the plan right, and then we can do things. Or are we a people who start off by saying, at every step of the way, we need to rely on God, and therefore the first thing, the most important thing, to see this blessing take place is that we need to be a people of prayer. If I ask you that question, do you want to see our church and the church in Scotland, the church in our community blossom and bless? Do you? Yeah. How much, though, do we turn that desire into heartfelt prayer? As the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And I, I fear in churches that what we have done and why we have exhausted ourselves quite often is we've been busy building houses without asking for the Lord's blessing right at the beginning. So I just leave that thought with you. Um, a, a few months ago, I, I said we'd start our services by a time of prayer for those that could gather to pray for our service and God's blessing. And it sort of fell by the wayside a little bit. Um, so I'm going to start that again. I think next week we've got something else happening just before the service. We'll hear about more of that later. But after that, I'm going to start in the mid-hall at 10 o'clock um, just praying and inviting as many of you as are able to come and join. If that doesn't work for you, all I would say is fix some time in your week and pray for our church. Pray for the Presbytery's mission plan and other things that we're engaged in. But at the heart of this passage, and what I want to look at today, is a notion of what's wrong. Here is Rebecca, and she's feeling kicking. Now, I'm told, I've got to be careful what I see here, I'm told when a woman is pregnant, that's what you, you, you've experienced, the kicking. Only it, it seems to be quite rough kicking that's going on here. She can feel a lot of kicking, and it's quite sore. And so she begins to inquire of God, what's happening? And uh, the Lord says to her, well, it's twins. And that might have been enough, but there's more to it than that. She says, these twins, the Lord says to her, these twins are born for conflict. And in a sense, that is foretelling the whole of the story of Jacob and Esau that we can read in the next chapters. They are born for conflict. They will be divided. One will try to dominate the other. And not just that, but they are going to represent two people. They're going to represent the people of Israel and, and, and the people of Edom, who are their nearest neighbors, and the conflict and strife that's going to be going on between those two people down through the generations. So yes, you've got something in your womb, which is, which is in one sense the beginning of the promise. It's the next generation of, of what God is going to do in this blessing program that he's got through the world. But in another sense of it, what's in your womb is conflict. It's sin. What's in your womb is, is, is people that are going to be fighting and fractious. And as I say, we're going to see that story as we go down through the rest of the book of Genesis. Now, here's the strange thing. In one sense, the whole of the story of the Old Testament from the, the chapter 2 of Genesis onwards is the story of how God is going to bless 
how God is going to heal, how God is going to work out his plan of salvation. But in another sense, if you read this Bible, it is a story of brokenness. It is a story of sin. We see it at every level. Adam and Eve rebelling against God, being thrown out of the garden. Cain and Abel killing each other. The story of Noah, we think of the, the, the blessing in the ark, and then we remember the story ends with Noah blind, drunk, and embarrassing himself. And we can go on from there. The story of Abraham. Remember how Abraham went down into Egypt, wondered that, that, that Pharaoh might take a fancy to his wife and kill him. So he says, well, tell, 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 tell him that you're my sister, putting his own safety above his wife's honor. What a man. And we can go right through the whole of the book with this. We're going to see Jacob and we're going to see how he treated his brother. And then we move on to the next generation. Joseph and his brother, they sold him into slavery after he told them how wonderful he was. And we can go on and on and on. In fact, if you go on past through Genesis, you'll see the story of the kings. Great men like David committing adultery with Bathsheba. Great wise men like Solomon committing idolatry. And generation after generation of brokenness and rebellion until you get to the exile. You know, this is a remarkable story, actually, when you think about it. That as the Jewish people recounted their history and their patriarchs, they didn't tell a story about how wonderful they were. You know, today, you go into the town squares of our country, you'll see statues to great men, generally men. Yeah? The odd woman. These people that are held up and we, we told the, the, the people in schools about you know, Nelson and Trafalgar or, or, or Wellington or, or, or the great explorers and all the rest of it. And what's happening in our generation now is that um, we're learning about the foibles of some of these people, aren't we? The dark sides. And the other impulse, rather than put statues up, is to tear statues down, cancel, forget it. What does the Bible do? As it tells this story, it tells the story warts and all from the beginning. These are the people who Hebrews will talk about as examples of faith. And yet right from the beginning, what we're being told is the story of perhaps one of the most dysfunctional families that ever existed. And that's just the Old Testament. And then you get on to the New Testament. And you're given another bunch of folk who the church puts on statues and makes stained glass windows of the disciples, isn't it? The 12 apostles. And yet when you read the gospel stories, what you find is a story of how 12 men were called, how 12 men betrayed, how 12 men deserted, how 12 men got it wrong time and time and time again. And then you read on to the epistles and you read about the early church. And you think, this is fantastic. We're going to have an early church. And what do you find? They're falling out about everything. They're falling out about money, sex, leadership, food. Good job they're not like the church today. Why is this? Well, it's the Bible is very realistic. God is going to heal a broken world and he's going to do it with broken people. Why does it surprise us when the church disappoints us? God has always being using broken, dysfunctional people to bring his blessing to the world. If you join a church, be ready to find broken, dysfunctional people, sinful, broken people. You know, it's interesting, this, um, just to do a little, bit, a little bit of theology. When we talk about sin and brokenness, 
There are different aspects to that in the Bible. Now, two of them, the most obvious ones, are personal sin and social sin. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, personal sin is quite simple. It's where people do things that they know are wrong. They make a bad choice. They go their way and not God's way. And we're going to find that in the story of Jacob and Esau. We're going to find Esau making a choice to disdain his birthright. We're going to find Jacob making a choice to trick his brother. Right? These are bad things. They're, 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 they are sinful things. And if you read the story, you'll find it gets even worse because these people have form. They carry on making sinful, bad choices down through the ages. And that is personal sin. But sin is also in another way. In that sin isn't just the bad choices I make. It's the things in the environment around me that begin to scar me and twist me that I can't make good choices. One obvious one here is that Isaac and Rebecca are playing favorites with their children. What does that do? That scars Jacob and Esau. It will encourage them, and if you read on to the story, you may remember it, where actually we get to the whole point where Rebecca's getting Jacob to put on goat skins and pretend he's his brother to deceive his father to grab the blessing ultimate in sin and lies and deceit in a family and you can't help but feeling is that all Jacob's fault or is that his mother's fault that's actually led him into that place and that sin carries on because actually Jacob himself having been scarred by his parents playing favorites ends up having 12 sons and what does he do he picks a favorite the abused becomes the abuser and that's another aspect of sin as well in the Bible. Sin isn't just the choices that you and I make and we're responsible for. It's also the sense that the world is broken around us. That's sin as well. Structural sins, social sins, family sins. And it's interesting because, and I'm going to be caricaturing wildly here, but basically there is a difference in approach to what's wrong in the world. And folk on the political right tend to focus on the first of those things. They tend to say, well, the problems in the world are that people make bad choices. So what we need is law and order. Enforce it. Punish the people who make bad choices. Lock them up so that people can make good choices. And if things are wrong in your life, well, it's obviously that you've, you've made bad choices. That's a caricature of, of the right. The left goes in the opposite direction. It, it, it tends to say, well, you can't blame the person. They're a product of their environment. It's a structural problem. And in fact, sometimes they'll say, you know, don't blame people. Don't lock folk up. Look at the background that they've come from and all the rest of it. And the Bible, as you begin to read the Bible through, <laughs> there's a sense of, and I love how the Bible confounds the left and the right because what it says is, yes, they're both right. You can't get away from either of those. If you forget individual responsibility, you've got a problem. How do you teach people to live differently? And if you forget the structural side of it, you have massive injustice. Massive injustice. Yes, we need individual responsibility. But we also need to recognize that if we are treated badly, if we're part of a broken society, it rubs off on us. It limits us. It's, a, it's a, just a fact that people who come from poorer backgrounds, people who are from minority backgrounds, are more likely to end up in our criminal justice system. That's not because they're intrinsically worse people. That's because of structural Injustices doesn't mean that when they robbed the shop, 
It wasn't their fault. Those two things are not incompatible. That's why, for instance, Isaiah cries when he sees God, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. You see both aspects there? I have done this. I have said bad things. But I am also part of a structure that is sinful, that has shaped me. It is not entirely my fault. It's our fault together. But the Bible goes further than that because it, it acknowledges personal sin and social sin, but it also speaks about original sin. And that is the sense that there is something in us that's broken even before we make any choices or before we have any parents. There's something in us that's broken because the whole of creation is broken in rebellion. David puts it this way in the Psalms. Um, we did that one. David does it this way in the Psalms. This is after he's committed a, a, adultery with Bathsheba, and he's, he's taking complete responsibility for that. He's repenting of what he's done. But he also says this. He says, I, I've sinned against you. That's him taking responsibility in verses 3 and 4. I know my sin. It's before me. I've sinned against you. But then he goes on to say this. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the moment my mother conceived me. Now, he's not trying to excuse himself. What he's talking about is that brokenness that is in every human being that gives us a natural propensity to do the wrong thing. If you don't think that's true, decide tomorrow that you're going to do everything right and not sin and not be selfish. What will you find? You will fail because there's something deep within us. And, and that's why we can say as Christians, yes, we have choices. And that's why we need to, as, as Christians, say that there is a right and a wrong. We, we, we give people the Ten Commandments. We, we encourage people to make good choices. But Christianity isn't just a set of moralism that says to individuals, you need to do the right thing. Because that would be hopeless. And Christians, on the other hand, recognize, sorry, I don't know why the slides are not. Oh, I'll get back to that later. Anyway, um, yes, we recognize that the world is broken. People are crushed by cycles of abuse and injustice. And that's why the church needs to be engaged in the political arena. We need to be asking the questions. We need to be working to set the slaves free. We need to be bringing good news to the poor. We need to be asking questions about why there is poverty in the world. Why does that happen? We need to be bringing, as Leviticus says, uh, Leviticus spends an awful lot of time talking about social justice, talking about creating welfare systems, talking about all the things that make people free. But Christianity isn't just a political program because we know that even if you got all the politics right, even if you got all the laws right, even if you had the ideal government, you would still find that the world was broken because people would make the wrong choices. You know, the story of Noah perhaps reminds us of that. God took all the things that were wrong in the world and wiped them away. Give them a fresh start. They were no sooner out the ark than Noah was blowing. It wouldn't do just to try to fix things up because of original sin. 
because sin is deep within us. It runs down through the generations right from the beginning, right to the end. And that is why the gospel says, yes, we need to give people the ability to make the right choices. Yes, we need to talk about social justice and structural sin, but also we need more than that. We need the human heart healed by its creator. We need the gospel. We need God to intervene that there might be forgiveness for those that have made bad choices, and there might be healing and redemption and justice in a broken system that limits and destroys people. That's why we need God's plan for salvation that we finally find in Jesus Christ. Anyway, I've wondered a little bit, so let's go back to our two brothers. It's interesting, the Bible often has two, doesn't it? Two builders, two thieves, a father, see, and a tax collector, a father who had two sons, you know, often gives us two examples to make us think about which one are we. Well, Esau and Jacob. Esau is a man's man, big, hairy, strong. He's the firstborn. He's a hunter. He's a warrior. In the ancient society, he would be the ideal leader. You want the leader of your tribe, the leader of your group, the person to be the strongest guy who can win all the battles. That's Esau. Jacob, he's a mummy's boy. He's a bit soft. He's clever. He's crafty. He's intelligent. I think he probably got A's in his hires. He stays near the tent, says the Bible, which means he probably looks after the sheep. We find him cooking, which is interesting because that's servant's work. His brother, the hunter, has the status. The second son just seems to be helping in the kitchen. And yet God's choice falls on Jacob. That just reminds us that the things that we think are obvious are not. God does differently. That humbles us. So what's the story? Well, the story here is all about the birthright. Now, how that seems to have operated is this. When, when, when a man died, his estate would be split among his sons. But the eldest son who had the birthright would get a double portion. So in the case of Jacob and Esau, what that means is that, that Esau, as the elder, would have got two-thirds of the inheritance and, and Jacob just one-third. But here is Jacob, the opportunist, grabbing and taking from his brother. He's a chancer. Maybe I met a few of those in life. Esau comes in hungry. I'm starving, he says with hyperbole. I want some stew. Jacob responds, sell me your birthright. Oh, whatever. That's not going to do me much good. I want the food. No, no, says Jacob. Esau, I'm serious. I want you to sign on the dotted line. I want you to know what you're doing here. Oh, yeah, just, just whatever. Just give me the food. So he sold two-thirds of his family's inheritance for stew. It's worse than that, actually, because it's lentils. I mean, if he'd done it for a steak, I could have sort of understood it, but it's a vegan meal. <laughs> well, you know, this guy's hopeless, isn't he? What does this say about Esau? Well, apart from the fact he's a bit of a mug. It's something to do with his character, actually, that's being revealed here. This is a guy who doesn't think about consequences. He just lives for the moment driven by his appetites. This is the man who would probably have had a one-night stand and not actually thought about the consequences for his marriage. This is the guy who'd build a house on the sand because it's quicker. 
This is the guy who tried to gain the whole wide world and lose his soul. The Bible's, the Bible's conclusion is absolutely shattering. It says that he despised his birthright. He held in contempt that which should have been his driving ambition. And if that's who he is, how can God work his long-term plan through him? God's promise to bless this family and bless the whole of the world through it is a long-term plan. And here is Esau, completely contemptuous of his place in the family, of his future. It's all unimportant. I just want to have fun. You know, we've been given a gracious gift, haven't we? In Jesus. Baptized into him. Saved at great cost. Called at a purpose for the world. And it should humble us because this is a weighty thing. This is an important thing. This is a costly thing which God has given us. Do we treasure it? Or like Esau, do we just go for the moment? Jacob, in contrast, might have been a chancer, but he does value the birthright. He thinks about the long term. And it's as if God said to Jacob, I can work with that. Yeah, you're not perfect. Not at all. But I can work with that. The story, as I said, doesn't portray Jacob in a very good light at all. It's not a case of Jacob's a good guy and Esau's the bad guy. In fact, as we go on, we find, as I said, Jacob stealing from his father. Jacob deceiving him. Jacob pretending he's his brother. Jacob seems to spend his whole life cheating and stealing, taking the moment. But there's a sense that sim somehow God's got his hand on him. And he sees the value in that. Now, Jacob doesn't get off scot-free. When we sin, when we rebel, when we do the wrong thing, there are consequences. And we see that in the Bible as well. Jacob will be driven out of his home. Jacob won't get that birthright at all in financial terms. In fact, he'll lose it all. He'll have to leave, hunted by Esau, until he goes into the wilderness. And for years there, he's only got someone else's sheep to look after until he meets a guy called Laban, who's an even worse cheat than he is. But God is still at work. But sin has its consequences. I was reading a story the other day um, of a minister who had a man that was next to the golf course. And, um, well, he quite liked playing golf, so one Sunday morning he couldn't be bothered with work. So he decided to play hooky. Phone the session clerk up. I, I, I'm, I'm not well. Maybe, maybe I've tested positive it would be in today's language, wouldn't it? And off he went on to the golf course. Now, he actually was a terrible golfer. Par 33, is that bad? Something like that, anyway. So he's going round, you know, hitting the uh, bad shots and taking ages over it. And the archangel Gabriel sees him and says, Lord, how are we going to punish this man for what he's doing? The Lord says, just wait and see what happens on the seventh hole. So Gabriel watches. The minister comes to the seventh hole, hits the stroke, and he gets a hole in one. And Gabriel says, what type of punishment is that, Lord? The Lord says, think about it. Who is he going to be able to tell? <laughs> Sin has its own consequences. Jacob will find that. He'll wander. Read the story. I, we can't just do the whole story in, in one sermon. Go read it. He wanders for years. But somehow, despite all his bad choices, God's not finished with him. 
Despite the broken family environment, the original sin, God is still at work with him. He'll come to Bethel and there he'll meet the Lord and he'll come to know him and it will transform him. And when you come to chapter 32 and 33, he comes back to meet his brother. Now remember, he's stolen from his brother. He's run away. And, it, and here he comes back to meet his brother and he expects his brother to be in a murderous fury. But we find this weird story of, of Jacob sending gifts to his brother. What is it about? Well, actually, what he's saying at that point to his brother is, I'm not coming to take your stuff. Forget the birthright. Forget the two-thirds. I'm not interested. I'm going to give you things because I am content not to grab at things, but I'm content to live with what God has provided for me. God of Bethel. We sing that hymn about all that God has provided. What are the lessons here? Well, one of the simple lessons here is God's grace, God's promise, God's choice in us overcomes the obstacles. The obstacles for us can be many. It can be that it seems that there is no future, like the barrenness that was in that family. Maybe it's our bad parenting or the bad parenting we were shown. Maybe it's the, as folks say, the hand we were dealt, although we don't see it in sort of chance way. Circumstances that make us who we are, the conflict, the family feuding that has left us deeply scarred, or maybe it's our own choices. It certainly is our own choices. But the message that we have as a church in faith, what we might call our birthright, is this. That God works through broken people. In fact, it's not just that God works through broken people. The brokenness of the church is a sign to the world of hope. A sign to the world that God doesn't give up. And that the gospel isn't a fairy tale where there are some perfect people who find perfect things and live in a perfect way happily ever after. Rather, it's the real world in all its brokenness, but with the promise of God. And for us, all of that is realized in Jesus. Jesus, who was entitled to the full birthright of the Father, the Father's only Son, who had made all the perfect choices in life, never sinned, who was without original sin, and yet gave all of that away for us, given it all up on a cross. A reminder that God never gives up. And the cross that symbol of the complete brokenness of the world, a symbol of the choices that people had made that had led Jesus to that place, the corruption and the brokenness of the empire and all that was wrong in the world that led to that place of suffering reminds us that God will break down every obstacle and every sense of brokenness to bring the new birth of resurrection. And that is our birthright. Let us not despise it but let us be humbled by it, hopeful because of it, and cast ourselves back on the mercy of God.